You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Matt, and uh, I have the privilege of being able to share God's Word with you guys today. I am uh, post a something virus thingy, so that's the slight sound in my voice, but I'm pretty sure I'm not contagious, at least for the recording. And uh, I am coming on the Holy Spirit's help and Advil, so um, Advil could go one of two ways. So if I say anything that doesn't make sense, let's go with the Advil. We're in the book of Mark. We've been at Mark for a long time here at Citizens, and uh, we are looking at really the story of Jesus as told by probably Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, to John Mark, who wrote the gospel that we are looking at today. Our verses today uh, take us back to an ancient time. So if you're relatively new to faith and the Christian experience, then uh, a lot of the text that we read uh, was written uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. And so to get ourselves into text like this, it's a good idea to try to use your imagination to get yourself to that place. If we think about some of the questions that are being asked in Mark, um, Mark has been asking us questions to consider about the person of Jesus, things like, who is Jesus? When Jesus claims to be God, what does that mean? What God is he talking about? How can God be more than one, since the Jewish faith was a one-God religion, the Shema from Deuteronomy? If he is God in the flesh, showing us the way to the Father, then what kind of kingdom is this that he's introducing and talking about? This upside-down, other-centered, love-infused, status-quo-breaking kind of kingdom that he seems to be bringing. He's taking the values of the Jewish uh, tradition, and he's infusing them with Christ-like ideas, teachings, miracles, healings, a kingdom. So let's jump into today's text. This, uh, the painting up there, which is a, a little blurry there, is of uh, our, our main character in today's, um, today's verses. Uh, we start the verses in a bit of a different story. So there's kind of two stories going on here. There's two narratives. Uh, and we have the Passover happening. The Passover is arguably one of the most... Um, important Jewish traditions. Uh, If you remember the book of Exodus, this is where uh, the people of Israel were delivered by God, single-handedly essentially, from Pharaoh, uh, from oppression, from violent cruelty at the hands of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And we know from previous texts that Jesus has been kind of stirring things up. He's been preaching, like I said a bit earlier, a countercultural message of love over power. And any time that there's a message that rattles power, we know that power doesn't like that. And so we have the Jewish leaders, the religious, getting together to have a little powwow and to talk about what they got to do with this guy. And according to our text today, and according to what Mark says, um, they are going to kill him. Their plan is to murder Jesus. But for PR reasons, that doesn't really look good around the Passover, especially since he's loved by the people. So they're going to hold off until they're done celebrating ironically, God's love and deliverance. So we have Mark giving us a kind of window into what's happening behind the scenes while Jesus is doing other things. It's kind of like if you've been watching uh, Rings of Power at all. I don't know if any 
Lord of the Rings fans in here and you're like, it's amazing or terrible, one of the two. Um, they do this all the time in there, where you have about five storylines happening at once, and by the time you get from the dwarves to the Southlands, you don't even know what was happening um, two scenes ago with the other guys. But there's only two lines here, so we can, we can stay with the narratives. We've got the religious people, the powerful, and we have Jesus and his people at a table. And they're at a home of a guy named Simon the leper. So in verse 3, um, we jump into this different story, um, where Jesus is with Simon the leper. Uh, scholars aren't sure who this guy is, but clearly he, it should probably say Simon who used to be a leper. Uh, because if Simon was a leper, they probably wouldn't all be in his house. Uh, if you know anything about leprosy, it's an incredibly contagious uh, disease, uh, a skin disease that um, as soon as you had it, you were, you were uh, ostracized from the community. You found yourself having to yell unclean whenever, whenever anyone approached you. Uh, and so this guy's probably previously leper, and he's probably somebody that Jesus healed. So scholars say this is probably a celebration dinner of that. He's like, you guys should come over and let's celebrate the fact that I'm no longer unclean. Mark is incredibly not a detailed guy. He and I would get along. He just does the basics. Um, John, though, writes and gives us some more details in a parallel passage in John 12. If you have your Bibles open, it might be a good idea to put your finger in at um, John 12 as well, because John kind of fills in some color for us of some more things that are happening behind the scenes. And in John 12, we know that Lazarus is here too. And Mary and Martha, the two sisters that are big friends of Jesus, they're Lazarus' sisters. So we have quite a celebration dinner happening here. If you think about it, you have a guy who was cured of leprosy, and you have a guy who was raised from the dead. So the stories that they're swapping around the table are probably pretty intense. I don't know if, you know, Simon and Lazarus are trying to one-up each other with uh, who's got a better story, but these are intense stories. So we have ourselves seated around a table. Um, Jesus, the disciples, probably the majority of the disciples were there. We don't know. Neither John or um, Mark tell us whether everybody was there, but there's a good chance they were all there. All 12 disciples. We have Lazarus. We have Simon. And then we have Mary and Martha. Whether there was more women there or not, we're not sure. Um, but we have this conversation happening with probably the men, because the way that it worked in Jewish custom, the men were at the table, and the women, Mary and Martha might have been allowed at the table, uh, because it was Jesus. Um, but if they were, they would have been kind of at the one side. So they're talking, they're having a, a meal together, and Mary walks in. So again, Mark, in the verses that we read, doesn't tell us that it's Mary. He just says a woman. Uh, but we're 99% sure from John's uh, account that it was Mary, the sister of Martha. And not to get confused with Mary Magdalene, because there's a separate story with her. Uh, but this is Mary, the sister of Martha, who in another account was also sitting at the feet of Jesus uh, when Martha was uh, making sure the scalloped potatoes were almost ready. So this is her, and uh, she walks in, and uh, she's got an alabaster jar in her hands, and uh, most commentators think for her to have this probably imported Indian perfume, it's probably a fairly family heirloom. Uh, it's not something that she would have just bought at the local market, because uh, she wasn't wealthy enough for that. Uh, it's probably something that's been passed down generation to generation. It's very expensive and it's very um, costly. She walks up, uh, she breaks the jar, pours it over Jesus' head, 
and she wipes his feet with it, and then she wipes it off with her hair. She wipes his feet with her hair, sorry. Mark doesn't give us all that either, John does, to tell us that she, yes, she broke it over uh, his head, but then she also went down, wiped his feet, and then she takes her hair and she wipes his feet with her hair. So for a Jewish woman to do that is incredibly intense, and it's provocative in some ways. Uh, her hair is considered her glory, as Paul will talk about in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 later. Um, so she's, get it, she's kind of letting her hair down in the presence of men, uh, and she's wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair, which is provocative, scandalous, and probably made everybody extremely uncomfortable in the room. Uh, the pillar commentary says this, it says, as a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by women unless they were serving food. Mark has often reminded us, however, that societal and even Jewish values are not necessarily to be equated with Jesus' values. So like I said earlier, the fact that she's even in the room and she's not serving food is a problem uh, for the Jews. Now we know for Jesus' sake, um, it's different. So, but because these men are followers of Jesus and they're in love with Jesus, um, they recognize that Mary has just uh, worshipped her Lord um, with wonder and sacrifice. Oh, actually not quite. It's not at all what happens, right? We have uh, some pretty intense gut reactions from the people in the room. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. It says that some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. So we've got two words there that jump out at me. Indignantly, when you think about that uh, word, if somebody responds to you indignantly, that's not just a, a kind response. It's an intense anger or harshly uh, responding in, a, in an aggressive tone. John, let's go back to John to get more details about what happened there. John tells us one of the guys responding was a... a kind of a bad actor in the entire story of, of Jesus, and that's Judas. And um, I'll read from the book of John, verses 4 through 6, where we see exactly what Judas said. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected and said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Yikes. Talk about an interior motive for Judas. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with the poor, but everything about, he's probably thinking, man, if you would have just given me that alabaster jar to give to the poor, um, I'd have a real nice place for that. Um, so that's kind of the... Like I said, Mark doesn't tell us that it was Judas, but Judas for sure was one of the guys who was really upset about this. But Mark tells us that more than just Judas were angry. It says the people in the room, the mood in the room was just like, what just happened? What is she doing? This is uncomfortable. It scares me. Uh, these are not the kinds of things we should be doing at a, at a meal. And uh, in particular, you just took a family heirloom. You broke it. You dumped it on this guy you've only known for a couple years. And uh, then you got down on your knees and you wiped his feet with your hair. It's a brazen act. And for Mary, it's worship and honor for her Lord. The people in the room, which the disciples often are doing, as we see in the book of Mark and in the Gospels, are often missing that, though, right? They're often missing what's going on in the moment. 
And we have to, you know, we can be hard on the disciples. These guys are like 17. So uh, they're a young group of dudes who are, you know, their brain's not even developed yet, um, just trying to understand what's going on around them. Um, but they're, they're, they're lecturing her. They, they, they move into practicality mode. We could have, you know, we could have uh, helped the poor with this. We could have um, found something else to do with this rather than just dump it on Jesus. But Jesus has a completely different approach. Listen to what he says in verses 6 to 9. He says, Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The people in the room, they kind of do the classic, how could you not eat your food when there's people in other countries that have nothing to eat? It's the same premise, right? It's a little different, but same premise. Why just dump this all over Jesus? You know, it could be easy to look at um, what Jesus says about the poor there as Jesus being very flippant about the poor. Like, you're going to always have the poor. Don't worry about them. Um, We know, though, from the Gospels, we know from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we know from the entire ethic of the kingdom of God that that is not at all what Jesus is saying. The heart of Jesus is for the poor, that much of his ministry is centered around people in poverty. I mean, most of the people in that room are are poor by the standards of of that day. What Jesus is doing is he's going at their hearts. He knows that it has nothing to do with the poor, particularly for Judas, right? That Judas could care less about the poor and that most of the guys in that room don't care that much about the poor. They're just seeing the money, the waste, the impracticality of what's happening. And they're uncomfortable with what they're seeing in the room. I love what Jesus says when he says she did what she could. You can look at that line and think maybe he's saying like she tried her best. But in actuality, what Jesus is saying there is like she gave it all. An expensive family heirloom. She broke the social norms of the women of her time. She, risked, she dared to risk being completely impoverished. Because, I mean, think about it. That, that alabaster jar was kind of like her 401k. I mean, it was the, the thing that probably in her family kept her maybe even a little bit more elevated than some of the other people in her uh, class that she was a part of at that time. And she dared to risk the scorn and the ridicule of the, the people in the room because she had encountered Jesus and she believed him to be worthy of everything that she had. I like what this guy writes. His name's Kent Hughes. He says that Mary followed her heart Snap went the bottleneck, out poured the fortune, and down came the hair. We have no trouble dreaming exalted visions, but getting from the heart, should say from, sorry, from the heart to the lips, from the heart to the bank account, from the heart to this needy, to the needy, this is another matter. If you think about the verses again, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then the way this passage ends is a contrast in storylines. Think about Mary and Judas. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he's like, I'm out of here, he went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this. They got an insider and promised to give him money. 
So they watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Man, Mark does such a great job of giving us two visions of what happens when people encounter Christ. Judas encountered Christ in the same way that Mary did. Judas was called to be a fisher of men a few years prior. He had met this rabbi. We don't know where Judas was at in terms of his uh, relationship with God at that point, what he believed about Yahweh or what he thought about his Jewish traditions. But something compelled him to follow Jesus at one point, and he was around this guy all the time. He saw the miracles, he saw the healings, and look at his heart. Look at the way that he interacts with it, with the person of Jesus. He's choosing power over this guy. Mary, on the other hand, is, like I said earlier, just by being a woman, she's in a lower class than Judas is. Uh, women are basically property in ancient Rome. Uh, some women have power, depending if they're born into the right family. But Mary wouldn't have had much clout in, in society. Um, and she has even less clout when she does stuff like this uh, in front of, of other people. And Mark decides to show us this contrast between Judas and Mary, and it's, it couldn't be more clear. Because we have this man who begins the text with Jesus at the table with Jesus, and at the end of the text we find him in the halls of power, trading Jesus for a bit of money and ultimately his soul. So... Let's go back to Simon the leper's home, and if you can come with me in your imagination and put yourself around the table and think about what that might be if you were there. Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. I was, uh, I was really encouraged and convicted when I was reading this passage uh, this week. Um, the idea of sacrificial worship is pretty foreign to us in Western cultures. Sacrifice at all. The idea of giving something up uh, for somebody else. We're marinated in a cultural framework that tells us if it feels right, then you absolutely have the right to pursue that. Right? Your heart is your number one fundamental dictator of right and good and truth. To deny yourselves is to not be truly human. Um, John Mark Comer said that the following. He said that self is the new God, and he's talking about our culture that we're currently in. The new spiritual authority, the new morality. But this puts a crushing weight on self. One was never designed to bear. It must discover itself, become itself, stay true to itself, justify itself, make itself happy, perform and defend its fragile identity. You think about what, um, what it feels like to have to justify yourself or find it within yourself to be happy or find it within yourself to have meaning and purpose in life. One of the things when I would work... Um, in, uh, in, in inpatient psychiatry work with young teenagers who are struggling with depression and anxiety and things like that, one of my absolutely least favorite things to do was the self-esteem group. And in fact, I would usually get my other colleagues to do it because finally I was like, I can't do this in good conscience anymore. Self-esteem as a concept seems like a good idea, um, and it is a good idea if it's rooted in the right place. But it's incredibly difficult to run a self-esteem group with people who have trauma, um, all kinds of things going on, and have absolutely nothing to root it in. 
If you tell someone to look in the mirror and say 10 positive things about themselves, and they would look back at me like, that's, that's a terrible assignment. Where, where possibly can I find 10 positive things out of, uh, you know, the life I've lived, the abuse that I have, the, the home I come from, the, the, the biological uh, things that are going on in my body? And I would be like, that's a good point. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure how to end this group. Just uh, look outside. There's like nice leaves and stuff. And, and when there's nothing rooting you, when self is all you have, that's a depressing and crushing world to be in. But what we find in this passage here and in the call of Mark throughout the Gospels is that Mark is not telling us and Jesus is not telling us to find our identity and our truth inside of ourselves, but rather that true life and true meaning is found in a person and that it's found in Jesus Christ. You know, this isn't to say that our bodies are not important because they are. They were created by God and they were created good. This isn't to say that everything is spiritual and nothing is material. But in fact, the Christian faith says that both are good and that we are dual people, meaning that we have physical bodies made of matter and then we have our soul. And when we meet Christ, those are united in the person of Jesus. And so when John Mark Homer is talking about self, is only found when it is found in the person of Christ, and that self on its own is dangerous, empty, and hollow. See, when Mary falls at the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair, she's giving up everything. She's giving up the alabaster jar. She's giving up her reputation. Everyone in the room thinks she's wacko. But she's found something far greater. She's found the object of her worship, the object of her affection, and she believes Jesus is worthy of all of that. And so she falls at his feet in worship and adoration. Probably one of the most famous quotes of a guy from the 300s, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, is found in his first book of his confessions. Uh, and he said this, you may have heard this one before. He says, you, meaning God, arouse us so that by praising, or that praising you, sorry, you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Western hedonism, this idea that if it feels good, do it. Hedonism just being like pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Um, it has disordered our affections. It has disordered the way that we think about what matters in the world. And I include myself in that. Um, you know, when we think about the things that matter and the things that we're willing to sacrifice, when you read a story like this, we, usually when we read the Bible, if you're a Christian, you hope you find yourself on the good person's side, meaning that um, you want to see your, Mary is me in this story, right? Uh, but the more that I read this text this week, I was like, probably not Mary in this story. In fact, it would make a lot of sense that I would be one of the guys around the table. Hopefully not Judas, but maybe one of the guys who's just like, yeah, this is pretty weird. This is pretty awkward. Um, it, it gets at my kind of formal uh, stoic background of just like, I'm not sure what you're doing. This is freaking me out. Um, we, can, we can worship Jesus, but A, you just were super impractical. Uh, we could have used that to pay off some debt. And B, uh, this whole wiping, you know, his feet with your hair is, is weird. Um, so what are you doing? 
But, but Mary has become, like I said earlier, in, enamored with Jesus. We know this from earlier on. She's the one who's at the feet of Jesus, uh, listening to him teach. She is in love with him. She believes that he is who he says he is. And when Jesus sees that and he sees her down there wiping his feet, he calls it beautiful. He tells the guys to be quiet, to see that 2,000 years from now in Elmira, uh, Ontario, we were going to be talking about it because of the beautiful act of worship that Mary had shown here. So the call of Jesus, the call of Paul in Romans 12.1, and the call of, that we see here in Mark is a deeply personal call. It was something I had to think about this week when I was reading through this text and asked the question, what am I willing to sacrifice for Christ? And that's, it's an interesting thing because sometimes we can, we can turn that into a, a works kind of sacrifice as if we just like do this, this, and this, then Jesus isn't gonna love us, is going to love us. And I don't think that's what we're seeing here in Mark 12. I think we see someone so in love with Christ that there's this uh, almost involuntary reaction to, his, to the beautifulness of Christ, if you want to use that word. And, and the only thing that flows out of her heart is just giving all that she has. Not as a way to earn favor with him, not as a way to uh, win his affection, but as a way to say, I think you're Lord. And because I think you're Lord, I think you're worthy of everything that I have. And so this text calls me and, and us to contemplation and ask questions of what, what kinds of things are, are, are my, where are my disordered loves, as Augustine, as we, he used to use that phrase, um, and I like that. This idea that your love has been disordered. What's, where is your affection? What do you care most about? What are the things that excite you? What are the things that uh, get you up in the morning? And this is a, a call to look inside and ask if, if, it truly, if we truly are followers of Jesus, as we've been seeing in the book of Mark, that Jesus is calling us to a different kind of kingdom, then what's he calling me to? Uh, to give up for him, where am I supposed to look like a fool? Not just to look like a fool, but because that's what I feel in, as I go before Jesus. It's a kind of worship that asks me to consider everything in light of him, right? My money, my friendships, my marriage, my sexuality, my kids, my desires, whatever they are, they're all to be taken to the feet of Jesus and held out to him. I grew up in a tradition that did revival meetings. So uh, it's a week of meetings where a preacher would come in and uh, preach from the Bible and uh, call the church to renewed faith, call people to a renewed um, commitment, passion to Jesus. It, it comes from uh, the second great awakening in America in the 1800s where guys would jump on horses and ride from frontier post to frontier post and call everyone to renewed relationship with Jesus. Much of evangelicalism as we know it in America and that has come up here to Canada comes from those great awakenings um, where people were just, entire towns were just falling on their knees and repenting and, and renewed uh, Christian faith was rising up. These kinds of events can become emotional and they can become uh, guilt-ridden and sometimes they're uh, manipulation is used, so there's, there's elements of it that, that can be uh, not a good thing, but I don't think a call to examine yourself has to be guilt-ridden or manipulation. 
the call of the gospel is to be reflecting on our hearts and reflecting on what's going on inside, uh, to ask the questions again and again as Christians, what, what has my affection? Where is my attention? Uh, is Jesus truly uh, the person in my life that I would fall at the feet of and look like a fool for, that I would break my alabaster jar, whatever that is? Uh, it's going to be different for everybody. Uh, we have different things that we care about, and those are those kinds of calls, like I said earlier, are deeply personal. So don't worry, I'm not going to do an altar call this morning. <laughs> I'd be one of the first ones up there. Um, but but I, I would end today by asking us to consider the call of Christ, uh, to think about Mary and to think about her deeply passionate love of her Savior. 2,000 years, we, 2000 years later, we are talking about it. And I ask that may we, may I, fall in love with Jesus with our loves ordered around the person of Christ. You know, our sinful selves will stumble and fall and often miss the mark. And our affections are going to be disordered by the time we leave our driveway tomorrow morning for work, potentially. But I pray for me and for the grace of God that we find ourselves coming back into that room with our alabaster jar, returning to worship our King. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this example in your scriptures. Thank you that it was recorded so that we could uh, come to it and ask questions about what you're trying to teach us. Thank you for Mary's example, how she showed us what it looks like to give our hearts and our lives wholly to you. Jesus, I confess that often my affections are wildly disordered and that you are far from the center of my being. And so I pray, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through your gentle call in our lives, that we would be ordered in ways that are centered around a king who came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for new life. And we pray that we could live joyfully because of that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.